And I said, well, last I checked, I'm the only one of your anchors that has a, a, an MBA. Um, so I'm, I would argue that I'm uniquely equipped to do that show. And they said, okay, but how can you do two shows? And I said, because I'm a woman and you know that I will work twice <laughs> as hard. <laughs> Welcome to No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis. Each week, we're talking to women playing at the top of their game. So how are they doing it? Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. Here with me today is a woman who's worked for almost every major news outlet, including ABC, NBC, and CNN. She has an MBA from NYU's Stern School of Business, was the first woman to co-anchor CNN's Moneyline. She joined the Huffington Post early on in its infancy and was a senior editor there. She's also an author and a distinguished voice in media and is now the first woman ever to be appointed dean of the USC Annenberg School of Journalism. Willow Bay, welcome to No Limits. Thank you, Rebecca. Happy to be here. I'm really excited to talk to you about, first of all, your new role, the first female dean of the USC Annenberg School of Communications and Journalism. We're going to get to that in a minute. And also fake news and everything that's going on in the world right now around journalism. But I want to talk to you about your path to all of this. And um, one thing I admire when I look at your story is the number of different places you could have gone, given your history. You started out in New York City. You modeled mm-hmm. um, Seventeen Magazine and Estee Lauder. Yes. And you used that to pay, I read, for the University of Pennsylvania when you studied literature. I did. I did. You know, it started with wanting to be a reporter. And my dad was in the magazine business, and he set up an interview for an internship um, for me at Seventeen Magazine. And it was summertime. And I was, I would say, about a sophomore in high school. And I went in for this internship. And I met Midge Richardson, who was this legendary editor-in-chief of Seventeen. And she said, well, you know, you've missed the cutoff for this summer um, to have an internship. So, you know, come back in January if you want to work here next summer. But, you know, in the meantime, here, take this. And she wrote on a piece of paper um, a name and an address. And she said, because we might have some other opportunities to use you in the magazine. What she meant was to be a model in the magazine, and what she had written down on that piece of paper was Ford Models, which was up the block. So that day, I took the piece of paper, I walked up the block to Ford Models, and went in and saw them. And because Seventeen Magazine had sent me there, they signed me up that day. And it took me then another decade to actually get to be a journalist, a reporter. A decade. A decade. Did you realize in that moment that it was a big deal that you were going into Ford Models with the 17 handwritten note? I knew it was a big time opportunity. Yes. So I I had no idea what it would really mean. But I thought, oh, my goodness. Wow. When I looked at that piece of paper that that this is Ford Models and it's up the block, so I better hustle over there (laughs) and see what they have in store and mine for me. So, yes. And then a decade later, you are a journalist. You went, I I think it's so interesting that you studied literature. So first of all, to any journalists out there who didn't study journalism, that's all right. Oh, it's completely all right. So I was an English lit major undergrad, and then I have an MBA. So, but also in that era, it was much more common not to have a journalism degree and be a journalist. A lot of journalists went to graduate school, but 
it was fairly common to hire history majors and English majors because you could write well and political science majors. And frankly, it still is. I mean, in, in some ways, we've returned back to that because, I mean, we were listening to to Barbara Fadida and others talk about the backgrounds and, and, and uh, Michael Korn on, on GMA about the backgrounds and the different expertise and experiences that come to bear when you're covering the news today. Did you think about going into business? Is that why you went to Stern? Yes. I thought I was very interested in business, and it's still something that, I, that I'm passionate about. But I also knew that um, I was an ex-model with an English degree. So it was part practical. Right? I felt like I needed a credential. And part driven by, well, if I'm going to study something, I want to be studying something that I'm really interested in. And I thought I wanted to have a career in, in, in business. So it was very much a combination of the two. And I will say the value of that degree for me was very much – is still very much the combination of the two. So the value of it as a credential, um, but also the value of the experience of, of studying business um, in what took me a very long time because I went part-time. I studied economics as an undergrad in constitutional law, and I've always said, for me, I think that it actually sort of gave me a side door into the industry. Because if I had walked in the front door and just said, I'm a journalism graduate, I would have been similar to a lot of the other people walking in. Did you feel that way too? Well, I I almost had the opposite experience, which is... Um, First of all, by the way, I did not take economics as an undergrad, and I thought I was being so smart because all of my friends were, like, sweating it out through Econ <laughs> 1 and Econ 2. And I was like, no, nah, I don't need it for my requirement. I won't take it. And then flash forward to business school, grad school, and I am now faced with graduate-level economics 1 and 2, and it was ugly. So um, <laughs> note, note to everyone – Take that econ class the first time it's offered. And Get then, it out of the way. And maybe the second, third, and fourth time because it is really useful. But what happened to me is I got out of um, – I got my degree, and I knew I didn't want to go to Wall Street. Um, I thought that I would work on the business side of companies, so p- potentially in their marketing department. But then I thought, you know, I really want to be a reporter. I still want to be a reporter. I have this bug. I'm going to give myself a year to see if I have some money saved. I'm going to give myself a year and see if I can get a job. And at the time, I, I had an agent, and I said, I know, I know. I'll be a business reporter because I have this fancy MBA degree that I just – and he laughed at me. Really? Yes, it was just – it was before it was before CNBC really took off. It was before Maria Bartiromo made it um, kind of sexy and cool to be a woman business reporter on TV. And he he laughed. He said, no, 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 no. Somebody's not – just because you got this fancy new degree does not mean somebody's going to hire you to be a business reporter. So he told me to start in fashion because that's what my, that's where my background was and and I did and he was right and I hated every gosh darn second <laughs> of covering fashion which was was this at NBC that you were doing this? No, this no. was before. These were my early, the equivalent of local, local, local markets, but it was all in New York where I had a variety of, of jobs on shows like, and then it was it was Regis and Kathy Lee and Joan Rivers and all those kind of syndicated shows. I would go and do fashion segments. Um, and sometimes they were actually fashion segments put together by PR firms. So I would go and, you know, You're like, pushing someone else's clothes yeah, or, like, or makeup you know, be, or whatever it is. Or it would is. be Lycra, you know, Lycra in your <laughs> swimsuits. And I do like hot swimsuit trends for spring, um, spring, summer, and it's, oh, by the way, made with Lycra, which ironically, 
actually prepared me for um, life running now a public relations program at my school because <laughs> I actually worked in that industry for a little bit. Um, so it all goes back to sort of how you started this, which is that I had a lattice-like career before they were called such a thing and not a climb-the-ladder type of career um, where all these little bits of experience that you accumulate along the way turn out to be extremely valuable. And like you, like the relationships that you build along the way, they form a web that supports you and carries you and gives you a foundation and a platform to do all sorts of interesting things that you would have never imagined when you started your journey. Isn't that the truth? So you get you get into journalism. Mm -hmm. You are actually doing the type of journalism you want. Well, how that long? Took a while. How, how did you f find so your way from so I was fashion doing, to that? Yeah, world. I was doing all these a variety of of segments, which gave me good live experience, mm -hmm. right? Because they were all live segments, and they were at local markets and networks, and kind of all over the place live. And then I did an, a, a cable um, a cable studio show um, at the Travel Channel. And one day I said to them, well, you know, I just – I figured out how much you're paying here for this studio and I figured out that you're owned by TWA so you could get – Free tickets. We could get you a we could get us all hotel rooms somewhere and the same crew days, and you could do fifteen shows in three days. And it will actually cost you less than sitting in this studio and doing a travel show. Let's go. Um, I love that you're thinking and, of the business side of all of and this they said, too. Oh, they said okay. I'm like, okay, okay, and <laughs> off we went. We went to Aspen, and um, nice work. Yeah, and I and they said we have a new co-host for you. And I get out of the car in Aspen. And I jump out and I look and there is Matt Lauer standing on the curb <laughs> of checking into the hotel. He was my co-host on this funny travel show. And this is before people knew Matt Lauer as the Matt Lauer of Matt the Today had Show. Gone to the Today Show and he was kicking around kind of in between jobs and he thought, oh, this sounds fun, a travel show where I get to travel. So it was my back-of-the-envelope calculation <laughs> proving that we could go in the field and do a show on, oh, different locations, actually at the locations, that led to being able to work with Matt Lauer, which was a phenomenal experience. I mean, he's obviously – now everybody knows that he's incredible, but he was incredible then, um, I thought. I mean, particularly to an, you know, an inexperienced um, reporter who had never seen anything like this before. So, uh, so that was my – those were my early, early jobs. And then my first significant job was – co-hosting a show called NBA Inside Stuff, which was honestly to this day a an extraordinary life experience to have a front row seat to the league as it was kind of exploding before our eyes. My first show, my first weekend on the job, Magic Johnson announced that he was HIV positive, which I don't know if you remember this, but oh, this I was a cultural phenomenon in this country at the at the height of the AIDS epidemic when it was ravaging our, our cities. And at that point, our, you know, it had not yet transitioned into the disease of women and children that it is today, but mm -hmm. it was just ravaging population in some of our cities um, on either coast. And and for me, not just to cover that story and, and to get to interview Irvin Johnson, but to watch the NBA as it helped guide this country through the truth about HIV and AIDS. It led, it was front and center in really leading a conversation about how you could contract it and how you couldn't. And fighting stigma, um, 
through through the lens of its very own teams and its very own players. So that was just week one. (laughs) Were you really into sports when you took the job? I was a sports fan. I grew up in a sports-crazed household. Um, My first crush was on a New York Giants player by the name of Tucker Fredrickson. When I was about, I don't know, six or seven years old, my father had taken me to a giant practice and we talked to him on the sidelines and he took off his helmet and I went, look at that. And I came home and said, Mommy, I met the most beautiful man today, Tucker Fredrickson. But I did not know anything about basketball. I knew hockey. I knew football. I knew squash from, you know, friends who were professional squash players and all these other sports and not basketball. And I was honest about it. And um, I, in order to prepare, and this is going to make me sound like a dinosaur, I went to the New York Public Library and I sat in a room for a couple of days and I read years worth of back issues of Sports Illustrated to get ready for the job interview. And then when I went in for the job interview, I said, look, I'm not an expert on on the NBA. I'm, I'm a sports fan and I'm an enthusiast, but I'm, you know, I, I know what I read uh, in a year's worth of, of Sports Illustrated about the league. And they said, okay, great, because we're looking for somebody who's not a sports caster, but, you know, a sports fan to partner with Ahmad Rashad, who is a sports caster. And then my final interview was with David Stern, then Commissioner David Stern, and his deputy, um, Gary Bettman, who's now the NHL commissioner. And David Stern said to me, well, you know, it's between you and this other woman, and you're both okay on TV, but, you know, you're the one with the NBA, so I'm going to go with you. Because if it does the TV thing doesn't work out, I'm going to give you a job in the marketing department. And that's how I got hired by NBA Inside Stuff. I love that story because I think it also – underscores the point that even though you weren't necessarily the biggest fanatic around basketball, you were able to tell really important, valuable stories. And I think in this industry, sometimes people think that the outlet is the number one thing. Am I going to be doing the exact kind of story that I want to do? And part of it is just getting your foot in the door because you never know what news is going to end up breaking. And it's once you're there, you got to make the most of it. Absolutely. And that show was in its day, we forget by through today's lens, when people tell their stories of their personal life all the time across every which way of platform. But that was really the first show that took viewers behind the scenes and introduced them to the players and their lives off the court. Before so we, social media. Exactly. <laughs> before before mobile, before social, um, before blogs, before really this mass sharing of our personal lives um, across all media. And it was truly a unique experience for me and I think a unique experience for viewers and it was also interesting the bond that we created um, with our viewers as a result I mean to this day people like which I can't even figure out how people recognize me from NBA inside stuff so you go from there on to working for the Today Show mm-hmm. you work for Good Morning America mm-hmm. you go to CNN you anchor Moneyline early on in the Moneyline so stage. the Moneyline story I'll, I'll tell you yes. is an interesting one because it it backs it backs up a little bit. Um, I got hired at CNN by Rick Kaplan, who was actually one of my mentors here at, at ABC, and he was creating a series of magazine shows. And he hired me to host with, with Time Warner Magazine, CNN's magazines. Um, and he hired me to do CNN and Entertainment Weekly with um, the late Judd Rose, also from ABC. And they were putting together, I heard, another show called CNN and Fortune. 
and I sat down with Rick and and uh, Pat Mitchell, another legend in the in the television news business, and I said, "Well, who's doing the Fortune Show?" And they said, "Well, we don't know yet." And I said, "Well, why can't I do that show?" And they said, "Well, because you're already doing a show." And I said, "Well, I can do two shows." Um, and I said. Plus, last I checked, I'm the only one of your anchors that has a, a an MBA. Um, so I'm. I would argue that I'm uniquely equipped to do that show. And they said, okay, but you know, you, you how can you do two shows? And I said, because I'm a woman, and you know that I will work twice as hard. <laughs> Way to sa- go! Right for the same pay. Uh, sadly, um, that that your male anchors will. And the two of them looked at each other and went, okay, you got it. Wow. That's. I mean, I'm really glad you did sell yourself. It's unfortunate that they were kind of more happy to do it because they knew they were getting a deal. So you're on Moneyline. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, so Moneyline happened because that anchor left the show and they looked around the network and called and said, we need you to come do this show. And I said, well, I don't really know how to do that kind of show. Um I'm up for it, but I'm not. And they said, nope, doesn't matter. We will we'll show you how to do it. So that, that's what I did. And I was paired with Stuart Varney, who was kind of the markets person, and I was the business story person. And um, over time, I learned I learned to cover the markets. What was it that ultimately said to you, I'm done with this? It was less me saying I'm done with this than living in Los Angeles, really, where the opportunities were much more limited, particularly in the uh, after the first, what I call the first crash and the first tech bust, um, when networks were contracting their um, satellite bureaus. CNN did not want to support that much programming out of their L.A. office, and I couldn't move back to New York. So the opportunities started getting less interesting to me. There was less financial news. I didn't want to do entertainment coverage. That was never actually something I was interested in at all. And I was always clear about that, as open as I was to um, sports and business and, and news. And it seemed clear that the world of television news in the place where I needed to live was very limited. But then I noticed this thing <laughs> called um, the internet was happening and was re- completely reshaping the news landscape, um, to say nothing of, of entertainment um, and media landscape. And Ariana Huffington was a friend and neighbor, and she was just at a point where she was expanding beyond her front page in politics, and she was about to um, launch business, uh, lifestyle, um, media, and entertainment pages. And I said, you need somebody to help you manage your content expansion. And for me, what was interesting about it, besides being on the front lines of yet yet another revolution, um, was I got to work with Ken Lehrer, Ariana's business partner, and Ariana, and I worked at that intersection of editorial, of news coverage, um, and business. And for me, that was the spot that was – um, I always tried to get to right in a variety of ways, either by doing journalism, which I love, or by studying business and doing calculations on the back of an envelope um, to see if I could tweak the model a little bit. And that job for me combined both in the most fascinating of ways and an opportunity to work for two legends in new media. It seems like being the dean now of <laughs> USC Journalism School probably is somewhat like that. It lets you wear a lot of different hats. What what was the decision to leap from that world of sort of more actively being a journalist to 
I want to now teach or be at the forefront of teaching of journalism? I would have to say that was the most fraught career move, career decision of my career because other opportunities presented themselves or I kind of shook something and something fell out and I grabbed it. This one was really one that I wrestled with because it was such a dramatic, I thought, culture shift. Mm -hmm. And I really didn't know if I was going to be any good at it and if I was going to enjoy the experience of it. And it has been, for me, fascinating to see. I mean, I joked around about it being a trip to Mars. Um, <laughs> and we have this brand-new, glorious Wallace Annenberg Hall building with the state-of-the-art media center. And the, the president of, of USC, when, when I tell him about going on a trip to Mars, he said, but I got you a fabulous brand-new spaceship, didn't I? And that's, I mean, that's kind of the perfect way to, to describe it. It is much more like the industry than not, to hmm. be honest. And part of that is that I'm not in a classroom every day. Um, I'm I'm with students, but um, my job is running the school. Right. And that that involves student interaction, that involves faculty interaction, and that involves a lot of industry interaction. Make sure that we are connecting with our industries of practice in ways that both infuse the school and its programs with the very latest thinking that will help guide and shape the industry with the new knowledge creation that's coming out of our groundbreaking scholarship and also making sure that we have the right sets of opportunities for our students. So there's an enormous amount of industry interaction that goes along with this job that makes it fun and interesting and and a bit like reporting, to be honest. And it sounds like your biggest fear was just being taken out of the game too right, much. Exactly. But now you're as much in it as you ever were. What do you think the biggest misconceptions students have about this industry is? I think students still think there's a right choice and the right path. And obviously where I see that the most is this time of year when they're heading out into the world, grad diplomas in hand and looking for a, a job. And they really worry that, I, you know, I think I want to be on air, for example, and I therefore I have to do this next. And that is just not the case anymore. There are a lot of, e even if that's your ultimate goal to get on air, as you well know, there are a lot of different paths to get there. But there's also now more than ever more jobs um, and more variety in the kind of assignments that you do as part of those jobs to make for a really rewarding, deeply interesting career, whether you wind up on air or not. I completely agree with that advice, by the way. So when you look at the industry, and we now, many prestigious news organizations have been labeled as fake news by the current president. What do you think the industry needs to do more of to combat that? And what do you say to students who are thinking about going into this world when they're seeing these institutions that have always been held up on a pedestal being knocked down by the president? Students, I think in some ways, as is some of the industry, frankly, are energized, oddly, because there's a they have been taught or they are learning that it is their job to challenge, to probe, to ask questions, um, to push for answers. And I think seeing new challenges, right, historic, unprecedented new challenges, at least in this country, has energized them in their pursuit of this as a career as it has energized 
other students in our communication and public relations program, and frankly, across the entire university, um, to really uh, energize them to dive a little more deeply and appreciate a little more fully the importance of a free and fair press. I think there's a lot of energy around what what that means today and how we need to be thinking about supporting those institutions. The thing that I struggle with is this question of, as a journalist, Mm -hmm. what is the appropriate stance to either fight the fake news Mm -hmm. label or what do we need to do? I mean, I hold myself to the absolute highest standard and always have and grew up in a home with a mother who's a journalist who also did the same thing. I mean, this is the question of the day. And and I think I'm going to put aside the, the what do I do as a journalist question for a moment and think about what um, what we should be doing as leaders of academic institutions or, or media companies or news organizations. I do think we need to collectively in a way that is not defensive because now we're back on the ropes a little bit, mm-hmm. but is proactive and actively define what high-quality, branded news and information looks like. What are the attributes? So let's let's define them and articulate them in a proactive way, not a defensive posture. And I think that requires really thinking through our practice um, and explaining a little more fully what it means to be you, right? Mm-hmm. What it means for you to do your job day in and day out. What do you do that makes your work your work product different from somebody else's. What is, and is it is that a you, Rebecca Jarvis, the journalist byline? Is that ABC News, the brand? Mm-hmm. Is that the Walt Disney Company, the parent brand? Like, what are the elements of those things that um, come together um, as brand attributes of quality, reputable journalism content? And those are big. Those are big issues, but I think it's imperative that we start articulating that really clearly, really loudly, and in a way that resonates. You know, that's that's a good idea. Well, we need to do that. <laughs> so why aren't we doing that? And, and by the way, that's the same is true for journalism school. People ask me all the time, well, well how do you do this in, in, a, in an era where, you know, everybody's a journalist? I'm like, well, if you spell something wrong, you get an F. Yes. If you have a fact wrong, you get an F. I mean, Attention to detail. Pretty simple and pretty straightforward. That's a good the point. Other, the other thing that I think is that is important kind of culturally in a bigger sense is this idea of media and news literacy. And it's one of the changes that actually at Annenberg we've made in the curriculum, not just the journalism curriculum, but it's it's part of our core course requirements for our communications program and, and soon to be added to our public relations program, which is in in the digital era, what does it mean to be a literate, critical consumer of news and content? So teaching young people to do more than consume, but to critique and, ev- and evaluate, um, and then, frankly, to create, to understand the tools, how to use the tools of creation in a world where we all create content all the time, how to use those tools in an effective and ethical way. Um, Judy Muller, Professor Judy Muller, who's a former ABC News anchor and reporter, um, actually developed this class with a, with a communications professor, and they teach it together to get both perspectives. And she teaches something called the smell test, 
which is source, motivation, evidence, logic, and what's been left out. So it's a handy way of taking a look, teaching young people to take a look at a story and very simply and very quickly begin to give it a diagnosis. Healthy news content or not not such healthy news content? You now are in this position where you're working with so many different companies. You're working with students from all over the world. If you were going to be building a news organization from the ground up today, what would it look like? It would look more diverse than many of our news organizations look today. And I don't mean that in a racial and ethnic diversity sense. I mean in points of view. Because I still think what we are wrestling with right now is the bifurcation of the country into the and you can't see the shape that my hands are making right now, but it's sort of um, like a like a O shape where the on the coasts, both coasts, and the big cities, the top twenty cities represent forty two percent of the country. The other forty two percent is truly in the middle, not rural, not small, teeny little towns and hamlets, but this sort of center part of the country that represents forty two percent of the country, and those two pieces are not talking to each other. They're not listening to each other. And so when I say um, build a more diverse newsroom, it's a newsroom that really connects with um, all of those cities and not just either the 20 on the periphery or the 40 in the center, but really has a way of talking across them all. And it's not it's an easy thing to say. It's not an easy thing to do. And I see that, you know, I, I see that in our academic institutions, too, that tend to be um, they have student representation from everywhere. But our faculty perspective is often um, very representative of the top 20 or the coastal elites or whatever, however you want to describe them, and not necessarily fully reflective of the point of view of of the entire country. Is there anything that you think might, that, they, that the news organizations themselves don't see that you see? Because you're seeing people early on in their career. So is there anything that you think we're not doing that we could be doing? Oh, I just think it's a matter of having that be an articulated goal. Yeah. Because I I feel like, particularly when I look through the lens of ABC, which I know which I know the best, um, not not just because um, I'm married to Bob Iger, but because I have great relationships here, and you all have been a great partner to Annenberg. So I've brought in, you know, Barbara Fadita to talk to our students, and frankly, our our school as an institution about how you. Um, create a more representative um, news team. And she's been very articulate about about the strategy here that is based on experience, right, and the unique value of individual experiences and how to put together those form a mosaic that is more representative. I think geography, if you will, or even political leaning um, thrown into that mix of diversity is important. And I think that will help recast a newsroom. So when you look back on -hmm. your career Mm -hmm. at this point, what's been the toughest lesson you've had to learn? There's just so much you can't control in the business. In the business. You know, your shows are going to get canceled. Staff's going to get cut. um, New shows are going to spring up. And that's hard because you want to be able to manage your career and manage your path and manage your opportunities. And and it's it's a lesson that I think people have to learn early on that sometimes that part 
It's just not in your control. Couldn't agree with you more on that point. Okay, so my favorite question, I ask everyone this, worst advice. What's the worst advice you have received? Um, all right, I'm going to tell you best advice and, okay, and worst yes. advice. Best advice, because I told you that I volunteered to work for cheap, um, <laughs> was when I took that next job, um, best advice given to me by my husband was asked to, be the, asked to be paid the same amount as he's being paid, meaning your co-anchor. And the worst advice, I think, was to change my name. And which was actually good advice, sort of, meaning my nickname is Willow and my legal name is Christine. And it was it was like, well, Willow's kind, Willow Bay is sort of a goofy name to be a, new, a serious news person. Um, so you should really, you know, change that. And on its surface, that was smart ad- advice because Willow is sort of an eccentric, unusual name and at a time where you wanted to be kind of taken seriously and, and be like everybody else. But why that was not good advice is – as you get older, or as I've gotten older, I've realized that sort of being true to who you are um, not just matters for your life, but it actually plays out in your career as – I would imagine any career, but I can only speak to career as a, a reporter or an anchor. That that unique set of attributes and experience and skills that make you who you are um, are are critical. And to be as true to that as you can throughout your journey is critical. And my name, my nickname in this case that my parents always called me, um, was was sort of a critical piece of of who I, I was and who I am. Willow Bay, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Before we go, this week's No Limits Entrepreneur comes to us from Fresno, California. Nathalie Juarez is a fashion and lifestyle blogger and the digital creator behind NathalieJuarez.com, a blog she created in 2012 with the goal of offering budget-friendly fashion tips and tricks. Growing up, she says she couldn't always afford the latest trends, and through her blog and YouTube channel, she hopes to empower women on any budget to look and feel their best. Nathalie, thank you for being a part of the No Limits community. And remember, to everyone who's listening, you can send nominations for the No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week to me here at No Limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. I'm reading all your emails, so send them in. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of No Limits. If you like what you heard, please make sure to leave us a review. It really does help get the word out. And don't forget, you can follow along with us behind the scenes on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Snapchat at Rebecca Jarvis. Special thanks to the team here at ABC that helps make this happen. Taylor Dunn, Josh Cohan, Michelle Bancardo, Andrew Kelb, Steve Jones, Annie Osakwe, and Elizabeth Hecht. And coming up on the next episode of No Limits. I used to be so afraid to say it out loud, but my friend Jamie said to me the other day, like, share your optimism. I just really feel right now I'm in this shift. Things are happening and I'm allowing them to happen and I'm happy to share it. I really feel like I'm entering into a new chapter of my life. Until then, take care. Be well. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.